0: We had a case during the pandemic in a conservative county when nobody knew what to do with conservative jurors, the pandemic, how you're gonna try a case with masks, all that. We thought that verdict was 10.8 million and that was in a county where the biggest verdict was 150,000. So the attorneys thought we were nuts. They tried it, they got 10.8 million. No. Yeah, on the dot.
1: Welcome to the Tip the Skills podcast, where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm your host, Maria Monroy, president and co-founder of Laric. Today we have John Campbell joining us. And I don't know if you guys know this, but I very rarely have someone on the podcast that I don't already know prior to recording with them. And I was at TLU Beach, and John Campbell was with Sean Claggett grabbing a drink at the bar and I started talking to them and 30 minutes after John and I were like, let's go record. Um, So we did and I was a little bit nervous because I don't know anything about Big Data and um, I didn't know John well, I mean I still don't but I am so glad that I did because it was such an interesting conversation. I really hope that all of you guys know that this exists because it is so freaking cool. So let's get to it. So Big Data can help you get better verdicts. John's system has proven to be incredibly accurate at predicting what a jury will award in a case. And not only can you make sure that you're not asking for so much money that the jury will vote against you, but you can make sure that you're not leaving any money on the table. So kind of finding that sweet spot. Um, obviously the earlier you start studying the case, the more options you're going to have. And then we talked about creating empathy with the jury and how that's key and using techniques like the man in the black suit can help jurors start to put themselves in the plaintiff's shoes. I really found this so fascinating and I hope you guys do too. We want to offer our listeners an exclusive deal. Right now, you can visit lawrank.com report to get a free competitor performance report. The report will include your top five digital competitors and how they're performing in your market, how you measure up to your competitors in the top three metrics, and that is referring domains, content, and monthly traffic, and a local SEO report. And this is a visual, it's a map, and this is tracking your Google business profile. And it's going to show you how you rank within a one mile radius. Again, all you have to do is go to slash report We will also be putting this in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: That's yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: I know nothing about you. And one thing I think our listeners don't know, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but I don't prep at all. So I don't have a need to prep. Um, I'm just I just sit down and have conversations. All I know about you is that you're a big deal. But I don't know why People keep asking if I know who you are. I need to meet you. So tell me, like, who are you? What do you do? Why are you a big deal? Are you even a big deal?
0: (laughs) Well, I don't know about big deal that, uh, but um, I do do big data. So maybe they might just be getting those confused. Yeah. what, What the fuck
1: does that even mean?
0: So my background is I started as a plaintiffs lawyer, like many plaintiffs lawyers, injury class actions, whatever. And then I took a job as a law professor at the University of Denver. I started bumping into people, not so much law professors, but in other schools that were doing studies using hundreds of people, often that they'd get online. And they were doing like what you used to do in a psych 101. You'd use your grad students to do some social science study. You'd manipulate things and see if people behave differently. They were doing that, but online for economics and human behavior. So I got interested in, well, could you do that for law? So I started publishing kind of jump forward. I started publishing in that field um, and continue to publish in the field of jury behavior in academic peer-reviewed journals. But I was a practicing lawyer and my friends were practicing lawyers and my wife is a practicing lawyer. And so the first case we ever studied was my wife's case where she had all these different options of how she could go to trial, whether she'd have all the defendants there or some of them. And how do you decide that? You used to just decide by guessing. You would say, all right, If we let these two defendants out, I think it'll be okay, but maybe it'll fuck up the whole case. Well, what we would do, so what we did was we said, why don't we approach this more like the way a scientist would or a social scientist would, let's present the case with all the defendants to 200 people online. Let's present the case to 200 people with only say four of the defendants and let's see how likely we are to win. Let's see how much the case is worth. Let's see what people say in their own feedback, let's see who are good and bad jurors in each case using statistical analysis. And we made decisions based on data. And it felt good because we weren't guessing anymore. We knew if we let those two defendants out, the win rate didn't change and the value, in in my wife's case, it was interesting, the two defendants who wanted to settle out, if they settled out, the case was just as likely to be won and it was worth more. So their money was free to us. Well, once we had the data, it was an easy call.
1: Got it, okay, well, that's that's fascinating. So how did you go from just like one doing this once to like, well, let's keep doing this?
0: Yeah, yeah, we weren't looking to start a business. I was still a law professor, but the second case we studied was a, a case that was kind of a traditionally hard to figure out injury case. Here's the 30 second facts. Guy gets over-prescribed opioids, he gets addicted, the doctor's giving him a dose that the doctor admits will kill one in 32 people who take it. And the doctor's testimony was, yeah, but the other 31 have no pain. Right? So, I mean, the doctor was terrible. Everybody agreed. He shouldn't have done it. Here's the problem. The client who was taking the opioids, his wife stayed with him. His coworkers covered for him. He still had his job. So he had no economic injury and he had, what is his non-economic injury? He had four bad years that he doesn't remember, but his kids still loved him. His wife still loved him, right? So an attorney struggles with that. Historically, attorneys say, should I ask for a million dollars or $5 million or $20 million? Like, what will the jury think is credible? So in that case, we ran a big study. We presented the plaintiff and defense case without telling the jurors, you know, who's doing it. But what we did was, we asked for $5 million for one set of jurors, $20 million for another set, and $50 million for another set. Just like a medical experiment, right? Blinded. Oh, so you're A-B mani- testing, like in our yeah, digital A/B world, testing.
1: it's like you A-B test. Right? Yeah, you
0: know that. So, blinded manipulation, A-B testing. So, if you have enough people in each sample, and you don't change anything else, it's an easy question to say which one, on average, turns out better. Well, what we found out in that case was, it was so strong on liability, that we could ask for $50 million, and people didn't punish us. And so a case that the attorney was going to ask for $10 million, he ended up asking for $50 million, and he got a $17 million verdict. Well, that attorney was an Inner Circle member, which the Inner Circle is, if for those who aren't familiar with it, is a group of 100, sometimes a few less, 100 lawyers in the country who have the biggest verdicts and settlements in the history of the United States. All of them have billions of dollars in verdicts and settlements. And he said, come out and tell the group what you're doing. You can imagine from there it took off. So fast forward to today, we've studied 600 civil cases all over the country. We are at about 1.9 billion in verdicts.
1: Wow. Um, Yeah. But, and how accurate is it? Like, do you guys keep track of like, if we tell someone, look, we think you can get X amount if you do it this way, like, what are the chances that like what's your your win rate if that is winning? Like saying this is what we're telling you to ask for and then it works.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we measure that two ways. We measure how likely are you to actually win the case because sometimes we study cases where our answer is only 40% of all jurors vote for your position. Um, on that, we're damn near 100% in what we tell people. So for example, if we say hey, you're under, under 50 of, out of every 100 people vote for your case. We'll tell the plaintiff's lawyer you are highly unlikely to win that case. Because if you start deliberation, even or behind, the way deliberation dynamics work, you are very likely to lose. And in fact, that's what happens. In every case we've had go to trial, if they couldn't settle that case, they do lose those cases. Between 50 and 65%, that's like kind of the middle bucket where you're getting maybe more than half the jurors but not a lot more. Those cases are coin tosses. And that's the best the science is right now is they're coin tosses. If you tried it 10 times, you'd win at five and lose at five. That's about how it turns out. The crazy thing is, is if you get above 65%, 70% is gold. If you get right above that, where out of every 10 jurors, seven of them on average will support your case. The plaintiff's attorney wins that case almost every single time. And that's what's happened in the real world. Now, what you were talking about is damages which is a separate category, which is when we say you'll win X amount, how much you actually win? Well, I'll give you like a couple of good examples and then I'll tell you the average. So Sean Claggett just tried a case a few months ago, MedMal case. Our predictive modeling said the case was worth on average $44 million. He won 47.
1: I mean, that's pretty good. Pretty
0: close. That's uh, very close. Two months before that, we had a case in New Mexico where we thought the range was between 45 and 53 million because it was a big spread. Okay. They won 52. Um, we had a case during the pandemic in a conservative county when nobody knew what to do with conservative jurors, the pandemic, how you're going to try a case with masks, all that. We thought that verdict was 10.8 million. And that was in a county where the biggest verdict was 150,000. So the attorneys thought we were nuts. They tried it. They got 10.8 million.
1: No. Yeah, on the dot. No. On the dot. That's really cool.
0: Um, And on average, um, the average verdict is 120% of our prediction, meaning if we say 10 million, the average verdict is 12.
1: But are you hedging your bet then? Are you saying let's kind of lowball this just in case? Or that's just what it happened? Maybe because they're involved in the jury selection. Like, What do you attribute that extra?
0: Well, it is true that our model is built to be conservative because if you overvalue cases then you're telling attorneys to turn down settlements that they often won't beat, which would be unfair to their client and to them. Right. I mean, All if right, I tell, okay. if I say to somebody, Hey, your case is worth 12 million, they turned down 10 million and they only get 10, I cost them money. Right. So you, you should, should probably be yeah. on the conservative side. The second reason is we overproduce the defense case. So if there's a question about whether the defense will be able to put in a certain piece of evidence, we always put it in the presentation anyway so that if anything, we've given the defense a better day than they will have a trial. So that's going to drive down Not numbers right. a little bit. And then the last thing I'll tell you is we do jury analytics. So we look at just like political polling. We'll say, hey, people with a college education at a statistically significant level are 20% more valuable. All right. Well, then when the attorney goes to try the case, they know what evidence works. They know how much to ask for and they know who to seat. They ought to beat our average.
1: Got it. Okay, that makes that makes perfect sense. And is there like like and excuse my ignorance, I'm not a lawyer. Is there like a threshold? Like, should do do people only bring you in if they believe the case is gonna be worth X amount of million? Or like at what and like at what point do they bring you in? Like how does it work?
0: Yeah. Um, on the dollar side of things, we rarely work on cases under a million dollars.
1: That makes sense. Right That's around a million
0: dollars. It makes perfect sense.
1: What's your biggest
0: Biggest verdict, yeah, three hundred and sixty-three million. Wow. Um, yeah, and that was a single single death case. So I think that's one of the largest single death verdicts. I will tell you this, and this is just bragging. This isn't even humble bragging. Um, and it's just being an <laughs> asshole. Uh, the we I will say that we have worked on. We've only been doing this seven years. Oh, um, wow. that's we have a, worked on. I mean, we've worked on. Ten cases that are nine figures, and those are all individual injury cases, right? You get cases that are nine figures, but they're typically business to business, Apple, su Samsung. We have 10 cases that are nine figures where one person got hurt and we've got a bunch more that are 80 to hundred. So, um, I mean, big data is, is the way you get the biggest verdict for your case. So let me give you one example. Sean and I were presenting, Sean Claggett and I were presenting the other day and we had studied in his case, whether he should ask for 25 million 50 million or 75 million. If he asked for 25 million, he won the case and the average verdict was 12 million dollars. Most attorneys if they got a 12 million dollar verdict would put it on their website, jump up and down, tell everybody they got a massive verdict. But if he asked for 75 million dollars, he got a 37.99 million dollar no. verdict, okay? Well, he did ask for 75 at trial and his verdict was 38.8, so we missed it by 800 grand. But
1: Still, so if he hadn't
0: done the data, he yeah, but if he hadn't done the data, he might ask for 25, thinking that was an aggressive ask. Now, Sean's aggressive, so he probably would ask for more. But many, (laughs) many, many, many attorneys would have asked for 25 million, gotten a 12 million dollar verdict, and gone home happy. Ignorance is bliss, I guess. But the truth is, they cost themselves and their client 26 million dollars because they they didn't study the case.
1: But I have a question is it just like, oh, because you're asking for more, people are going to give you less? Like, shouldn't then people just ask for more? Or are there situations where you ask for more and then they're like, oh, you fucking assholes, now I'm going to give you less. Like, does it work against you at some point?
0: No wonder you don't prep. You're too smart to prep. Well, thank Uh, you. You have put your finger on it. No, truly, you put your finger on it. So what there really is, is there's what, what we call in our studies the Goldilocks zone. So if we study four or five or six different asks, typically we'll find that there's like a cliff. So the win rate keeps climbing as you ask for more, and then you hit the spot where most jurors think it's too much and greedy. And so if they're on the fence about how to vote in the case, they will actually vote against you on liability. And so part of our study work is to find that cliff because if you go over it, it could be the difference between winning and losing, right? And even if it doesn't cost you the case, it can cost you money because all of a sudden jurors say, no, that was a greedy ask, that was way too much, and they reject your number and work against it. So part of what we're trying to do is find, all right, where do we go that most jurors feel like this is sort of intuitively right so that playing the odds, this gives us the best combination of winning and money.
1: Got it. That's fascinating. And like, what have you learned about just like regular human behavior? So like, let's stop talking about, you know, uh, trials for a minute. I'm just like curious now. Like, have you learned anything fascinating that you're like, I'm going to like use this in my everyday okay. life.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, I have, it's an interesting question. I'll tell you one thing that is case related, but I think is life related. So for example, we find that if attorneys take positions that are sort of for the average person, a stretch, Let's say that they say that someone can't work and so they make this big lost wage claim, which is a common thing attorneys do. They, they build out this big lost wage claim and my client will never work again and they'll lose two and a half million dollars. And most jurors think, fuck you. Your client is in okay shape. He or she could at least work part time. Why aren't you saying that? What's interesting is, is that credibility hit infects the whole case. Now, if that same attorney had said, look, Maybe you think my client can't work. And if you think that, it would be this number. But I'll tell you what. I think my client can work and should work. And so I'm going to tell you, you probably ought to only give this lower number. You shocked the jury because they thought you were going to always ask for more. And what you did was you built your credibility.
1: And trust. And you seem fair. Yeah, you seem
0: fair. And this is the same thing, right?
1: Intuitively, you... Yeah, I get that. And that's the same for people,
0: right? Like, so, you know, if you... If you talk to people straightforwardly in your daily life, you admit the things that maybe you're not so good at. You are willing to concede that, hey, you know what, on this I was wrong. They don't think less of you, they think more of you, right? Uh, Which, you know, is a lesson we could all learn, especially in the plaintiff's world where, you know, big egos are not on, uh, you know, there's plenty of them to find.
1: No one has a big ego in our space. (laughs) Like, no one. I've never met one. In fact, I think it's like an eagle is... You know,
0: it's pure pursuit of just, altruistic goodness. Absolutely, yeah. just
1: wonderful, <laughs> pleasant, you know, people.
0: Well, there's lots of those. There is, um, you know, what, there's I, lots of those. You and I were talking about this yes, earlier.
1: Yes, I, I think that there's this misconception, or I think that people attract what they believe exists, and I really think that our space has some of the fucking coolest people that I just like love spending time with. And I just do not think that they fit this persona that people think the space is full of.
0: I'll go, I'll go one step further, I agree with you. I will tell you this, I think some of the people, even who seem like maybe they fit the space, they have a big ego, if you get past that, because they're sort of afraid to sort of be themselves, they think they need to be important and powerful and wealthy, and if I don't seem like all those things, like I won't get business or I'm not successful, you get right past that level and there's really good people there. And I'm so sure there yeah, are. I probably don't out.
1: give them a chance cause I'm like, people say that I'm like very like, like polarizing, like I either like, like someone or I don't. And it's like, I don't, maybe I should give more people a chance. Okay. Let's go back to big data then. Um, so if somebody wants to use your services, like how does it work? How long does it take? Like, do you first like review the case and then you tell them what you suggest or like, how does it work?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, so look, one of the things I think that you have to be careful with, with data generally is it's really easy to build a study of a case that would give you data that is meaningless or misleading. And so I always tell people, look, the only thing worse than not having data on a case is having bad data. Um, And why, you know, why does that come up in what you asked me? It's because, look, I'm a lawyer I have tried many cases to verdict. I ran a class action department. My wife's a lawyer. Her last trial was in December, right? I mean, we're still actively handling cases. And so I say that because the first step for me is I need to get to know the lawyer, talk to them about the case. What we want to do is understand the case factually, but also legally, right? Because sometimes, because we've worked with lawyers all over the country, we'll hear, oh, I have a a mild traumatic brain injury case. And we'll say, all right, tell me about your before and after witnesses. And they'll say, well, we've got uh, the person's wife and daughter. And we're like, that's shit. You, wife and daughter don't count. Do you have people that are neutral? Do you have people they worked with? Do you, have you talked to their dry cleaner? Have you, have you talked to people that would have no reason to lie for your client who can explain how they've changed since the brain injury? Because if you have two of those, you will convince the jury of brain injury. If you have the spouse come on the stand and say they're really different, that's not going to move the needle. Right? So sometimes, Before we ever do data, the fact that we're lawyers, the fact that we might say, hey, you're talking about this piece of evidence. Tell me how it's going to be admitted. And they say, well, I don't know. And I said, well, I was an evidence professor. I'm telling you, I don't see a path to admit that. So you're banking on it, but I don't think it's going to come in. Let's talk about it. There's a lot of the initial work that looks a lot like just lawyer to lawyer work, batting around a case. Then you got to put the presentation together. And that presentation determines the quality of your data you know, in, in the experimental world, they call it the stimuli. Well, all right, the stimuli has to be like the real case or the data's junk. So if you put on a great plaintiff's case with depots and images and video and everything else for the jurors, and the defense case is flat and not accurate, you'll tell them they're going to win. You'll tell them the case is valuable, but it's wrong, right? So the process, the beginning of the process is getting to know the lawyers, understanding the case, working on what we're going to actually show jurors that will be accurate, pushing them to articulate the defense case as good or better than the defense, and getting all that together so that we then have something to show jurors that is, of course, shorter and distilled, but captures what we think is most likely to happen at trial.
1: And at what point in time does someone contact you guys? Is it like once they have filed and there is no settlement? And when is it too late when it's like, hmm?
0: So it's 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 in some sense never too late. and What I mean by that is we get retained sometimes 15 days before trial.
1: Really? So you can do this relatively quickly?
0: We can do it fast if we have to. We can run a study in five days from finished presentation to report. We can run it in five days. Now, I don't like to. I think to do it right, you need a couple of weeks to do it well. But we've had people come to us with less than a month, say, hey, I need this. We run it. Now, what we might tell them is, all right you'll win this case about two out of three times. Here's what jurors care about when they vote against you. Here's what they say. The problem is they have less degrees of freedom at that point so that if we say these two facts are really bad and they say, oh man, we can't do any more discovery. We can't disclose an expert. We can't make a new animation. They may not be able to solve the problem they have. Now they can still pick a better jury. They might be able to settle that case because they know they're in trouble. The further we get from trial, the more freedom we have to adjust. So I love it when people call me and say, hey, I'm in discovery. I don't even know what the defense is going to say perfectly yet. And I say, good, let's not do a big study. Let's do a study with 100 people. Let's present the case and let's ask jurors, what else do you want to know? What are you worried about? If you're leaning towards the defense, why and what would change your mind? And then let's use that like a market research study. Let's build the case product to the market. So we know jurors need an animation because they don't understand the dynamics. We know that they need to hear what the defense would say to these three things. So we're gonna go find out in the deposition. We know that they need to understand the medicine in a MedMal case. All right, we're gonna go get an expert who can teach those things they were confused by. So in a perfect world, people call us early. We do a study to shape the case. And then ahead of mediation, we study the case because then we take that valuation to the mediator. And we say to the mediator, This is a study that meets all the standards for an academic study. It is scientifically rigorous. We have not put our thumb on the scale. Our average value is lower than the real case value. And 400 people say this case is worth $10.8 million. They can pay 10.8 or something very close to it, or we can go to trial because we don't care about their gut anymore. We don't care about the fact that the defense attorney says in this county there's never been a big verdict We know what it's worth, and we're going to follow the numbers. And if they say, yeah, but we're going to have a really conservative jury of Trump supporters, if that's what they think is good for them, we can give them the numbers on how Trump supporters and conservative jurors vote and give them the exact value. And often that value, maybe they're right, maybe that's 15% lower than the average. Great. Are you here to pay 15% lower than the average? If you are, we'll go home. If you're not, we should try the case. And it takes a lot of the guesswork out.
1: I mean, this is fascinating, and it just sounds like a no-brainer. Like, if you have a good case, why wouldn't you want all this data? So why, why isn't this more of an – is it an industry standard that I've just never heard of? Or, like, how common is it? Why don't people utilize this more? Do they think it's bullshit? Like, what's
0: the – Well, so things have changed, right? So early on, it was interesting that we would tell people this, and they would say things like, yeah, but these aren't real people. I can't see the whites of their eyes. I want to do a focus group. You know, I, can't, I need to talk to them, whatever. That's really changed, right? So I can tell you that right now what's happening is big firms are doing data, right? So, you know, for example, Sean's a good friend of mine. Sean Claggett is Alicia and I, my wife, our kids call him Uncle Sean. Um, Sean is like family. Well, Sean does data on every case he tries, right? And, you know, I'm thinking about the, like, the last three he's tried, um, that were verdicts. Roy Ball was a bike case. We predicted it at twelve. The verdict was fourteen. Trash truck case, which was a death case. We predicted it at thirty-eight. It was thirty-eight point eight. Medmal case. We predicted it at forty-seven. It was forty-four.
1: But are you ever like brutally like wrong? Like you just like. Can you, you be wrong? Yeah. Have you been like really wrong?
0: Really wrong? Yeah. Um, the good news is so far we've been really wrong low. Which is at least that's if not you're, what I'm
1: talking about. Like you tell someone, I predict this will be 44, and it comes in at five.
0: No. Uh, or
1: or they lose.
0: No, no. We've had one case where the numbers would have said the attorney would win, and he lost. But as we dug into it, three, the top three sort of facts that jurors said mattered to them. The judge excluded all of that evidence, and so what we found out was, all right, well, if we went back and studied this case now after the judge ruled, it was unwinnable. Um, but no, we were- you
1: guys we, didn't foresee that? Nobody. No,
0: nobody thought, I mean, look, they were really weird rulings. We, if we know a judge could rule yes or no on something, we'll test the case both ways. We'll A, B test it. And we can quantify those things. So often somebody will say, hey, the expert might come in on this issue or might not. Cool, we'll test it both ways. We know if it matters and we know how much. This was a case, it was a sex abuse case. And the, the kid who did the abusing, he was a high school kid who abused another uh, mentally disabled kid. Oh, what a the, tough case! The kid who did the abusing had a history of other abuse. The school district knew about it, and he admitted that what he did was rape. The judge excluded his admission, Why? excluded his past bad acts, and so the jury heard it like this guy was some saint – had never heard anybody before and had never admitted he did anything wrong
1: how is that legal
0: i mean the judge fucked it up and that's the technical term fucked it up um and look we had studied it thinking making our best understanding of the evidence all of us together the judge gutted it the attorney who tried it tried a valiant case despite all that and lost anybody who tried that case would lose the judge gutted it um and if you studied it with the way the judge presented it it it's unwinnable So I think that's like the closest we've come to a miss on the side where we said you'll win and you lose. Where we've had bigger misses, and I mean, look, we still have to think about them. There's still our responsibility is Eric Fong. He won't mind me mentioning this. Eric Fong studied a case with us where a guy got beat up outside a gas station. And the lawsuit was against the gas station because they did a lot of things wrong to let this homeless guy come in and out of the gas station. They didn't have security cameras in the right places. They they did a lot of things wrong. And so it was a premises liability case against the gas station for sort of creating this dangerous area and letting a customer get hurt. Our data said that Eric would probably win the case, but it was hard. And that when he won, the case was worth about forty eight or fifty million dollars. The jury awarded ninety one million.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. So I mean, we were way off, right? I mean, just way off. I
1: mean, I'm sure Eric was really happy that you were yeah, off. I mean, in he some didn't ways. call me and he
0: didn't call and yell at me, but the truth is we did miss. Now
1: why did you miss?
0: here's that's the interesting thing i think one because eric's a good lawyer um, <laughs> yeah,
1: that's really that's sweet
0: Two, 25 when we look back at the data 25 percent of jurors did give when you asked for 93 million they did give the full 93 eric ended up adjusting the ask to 91 because he has some thing about odd prime numbers i, I don't know okay um uh, I, that's not scientific that's just eric uh but 90 he went from 93 to 91
1: did he do that? Because they say that I don't know, I mean, maybe you maybe you know this. but don't they say that when you have like a really precise number, like ninety, um it just like it sounds almost like you didn't give it too much thought. But when you get into like ninety one it's kind of random, so people feel like, oh, there must be a really good reason why they got to ninety one.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a theory that that's true. I can tell you that having you tested st- it. Yeah, we have tested it and bullshit. Yeah, I think it's bullshit. Um, we we tried, for example, in a recent study, we tried 25 million versus 21 uh, 25.6 million because we were like, all right, but one, one looks more precise okay, than the other. Okay,
1: wait, wait, wait. It but have you better. have you ever tried something like twenty-five million five hundred and sixty like super like psycho precise?
0: No, we haven't tried it all the way down to the penny.
1: Can you try, please?
0: Sure. Yeah. We'll we'll add a manipulation. We can. I mean I'm like
1: just really curious if that would have a psychological effect because it's like, well, how did they get to the penny? Yeah. Right? So like this must be a very legit. Yeah. And I wonder if they would even come back with something
0: like Well, let me tell you. So yes, we can because we study about four cases a week. So we can add a variable, we can add a manipulation. But let me tell you something that is at least related to that, which is that we have found That jurors, because they find, you know, trying to value pain and suffering or like a dead child or you can't walk anymore or you're in chronic pain, like none of us know exactly how to value that, right? What we have found is that if attorneys will engage with the jury in how hard that work is and explain, this is what all attorneys should say. I don't say that often, like you should do this, but you should do this you should say to the jury, we know it's hard to do this. It's hard for me too. We know this will be the hardest part of your work. We know that if you could go back in time and simply save that life or heal that injury, that would be better. And we know that if you could somehow fix them today, that would be better. We know money is a poor substitute, but it's all we have. And it's the best we can do to try to make sure these people are compensated, taken care of for what happened to them, but also so that we hold the defendant fully accountable for the injury caused. So you acknowledge to the jury both the limitations of the system and that this is really hard work. And then you give them a framework to think about how much to award, where you might get an exact down to the penny like what you're describing is some attorneys in states that it's allowed do what's called a per diem. And so they'll say, if this were a job and you paid my client $25 an hour, 24 hours a day for the next 40 years. It's a job they never signed up for and would never take, but that'd be a fair wage for being in chronic pain for the next 40 years for not being able to do the things you used to do for being in a wheelchair for whatever that would be this number. And they'll do the math and calculate out the final damage number. And it's very precise. What we found is, is that that behavior not only increases damages a little, but it increases the likelihood of winning the case. Because jurors then see that you've taken this seriously and been helpful to them in the moment that's most difficult, so your credibility, like we were talking about earlier, rises. So where I think you might be onto something is if you ask for a very specific number, and the jury understands that you got to that number in some meaningful way, it wasn't invented.
1: But also, like then I if, think you get something. But wouldn't you also say to the jury like? Would you want to get paid 40 bucks an hour to be in excruciating pain every day? Like
0: You can't say that.
1: But but like do they have no empathy? Cuz I'm just like hear about these like what it's like to deal with jurors, and it just sounds like people lack empathy.
0: Yeah. Well, l- well hold on. Let me back up though so you know this. Maybe you do. Maybe you're ba- you were checking. Um you can't say what would you accept or what would you do? That violates what's called the golden rule. No, I didn't know that. But yeah. can you phrase so you it in a that.
1: way to like kind of paint that like because then it sounds so unreasonable like oh well you know for this amount of pain or not you know they would be getting 40 bucks an hour and then i would be like fuck that i wouldn't want 40 bucks an hour i want you know like right. i would want like right. is there yeah, so, a way yes. to manipulate that
0: so there's a cool there's a cool technique for that called the man in the black suit and Ooh. and here's how it goes so, i like men in black suits. yeah 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 so here's what you you say um, Nick rally uses this Claggett uses it. Some, some people say Jude Basile invented it. Um, Jude told me he did. I don't know, but here's how it goes. You say to the jury, I want you to imagine that let's assume the client is now quadriplegic. You say, I want you to imagine that, that, that a man in a black suit and a black car with a black briefcase showed up at my client's door the day before the doctor made the mistake that left her a quadriplegic. I want you to imagine he says to her, I'm here to make a full and fair trade for what's going to happen to you tomorrow. And then he explains to her in detail that they're going to mess up the surgery, that she's going to fear for her life, that she's going to suffer months in the hospital, that she's going to ultimately beat it. But after that, she's not going to be able to move her body. She's going to be locked in. Her brain's going to be okay, but her body won't work. And she's going to face that for the next 30 years that someone else is going to have to take her to the bathroom, that she's going to need 24-hour care, that she'll never hug her children again. You say, now, the man says, what amount of money will you accept today to go through the next 40 years of pain and suffering, the changes in your life? And, of course, the jury's thinking, no amount of money. No, No, There's no amount of money that's enough. Just go home. And then you say... And that's exactly what my client would say. She'd say, no amount of money. And the man in the black suit would say, but I can't change it. I can only try to compensate you fairly. The man in the black suit is you folks. Because you can't do that either. right? You can't change it either, jury. And you're right. No amount of money is appropriate because what we need to do is stop this from happening. But that's the job you have. And it's a difficult one now. I want you to think about what my client would accept for that amount of money. I would suggest to you that if she were offered $150 million, she would say no, immediately leave my home. But you'll have to decide what the right amount is. And what happens then for jurors is they're doing what you were suggesting. They have to start to they have to start to think what she would actually feel the day before if she had to face what's coming and what it helps them realize is the gravity of the situation, which is the defense always gets up and says, this is about greed That's fucking bullshit. Nobody would in a catastrophic injury case or when they lose their child in a wrongful death case, nobody would take any amount of money for that and any amount of money the jury awards is still too little. And so to me, that's one of the most effective ways to make jurors do what you're describing, which is to have some empathy, appropriate empathy because they're not imagining themselves. They're asked to imagine the client and what the client would feel the day before to lose what he or she has lost.
1: But we all make everything about ourselves, so I, I wonder if even in that moment they're imagining, well, what if the guy in the black suit showed up to my house? You know, like yeah, it. How common is this? The whole man in the black suit.
0: Not as common as it should be. Really, um, it just
1: sounds like why wouldn't you do it every single fucking time?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't know about it, right? Because knowledge dissemination isn't perfect. Um, some people think it's too dramatic or some people are uncomfortable. A lot of attorneys are really uncomfortable talking about damages and it's the biggest mistake they make. They get up and they sort of either just say a number and sit down or actually I've seen young attorneys not say a number because they're afraid they'll offend people. And it, look, it, it's, it, so it's, I would, it's a I mistake.
1: Would as, I would assume it just has to do with how they say it. It's not, I don't think saying it is the issue, but if they're uncomfortable asking for it, probably not going to go well. They right. got to get comfortable. Yeah, they got to believe it.
0: They got to believe it. Yeah, they got to um, get comfortable. You can see if they don't believe it.
1: Okay. So one last question, which everyone listening is probably wondering, what does it cost?
0: Yeah. Well, so if, if you pay us flat, flat out for a study right now, the average study is somewhere around $30,000. Um, but I'm a lawyer and my wife Alicia is a lawyer. And so increasingly what's happening is We have firms where this is our relationship on every case they bring us in. We do an early study to look around in the case. We study the case for mediation. We study the case to get ready for trial all the way down to which jurors um, are most favorable and least favorable. And then we study the opening statement. Sometimes we study the animations and we just inform the case with data throughout. And in those cases, we just work contingently right as a cooperating attorney on the case. You know, some attorney's specialty is they can help you pick a jury. Some attorney's specialty is they do appeals. Our specialty is that we're plaintiffs, trial lawyers who do data. So we're trial scientists. Um, and so that's my favorite relationship because then when I call somebody and say, I want to run another study, they know I'm not selling them anything, it's my money, right? The reason I want to run another study is because there's an unanswered question and that will, that will bug me until we find that answer and our client deserves it. And so we've had cases where we, in those settings where we've run eight studies. We've start, surveyed by the time we get to trial 1,500 jurors, but we are absolutely certain that we're going to try the best case for the client. Right. And so that's my favorite setting. And um, what's
1: the, the percentage that depends you on the
0: case size. Um, so you can imagine somebody comes in, it looks like a case where you just see it and it's like, well, this is a $50 million case. It might be a hundred, but it's 50. We're going to take a smaller percentage than somebody who comes to us with an employment discrimination case worth a million dollars, because you know, for us, we have to make sure that it sort of makes economic sense to pay 1,500 jurors in a big study. Um, but on average, we often take 5% of total recovery. So that if there's a million dollars recovered, we take 50 grand. Um, and what we're doing more and more of, which I'm really excited about, is these days we're getting called a lot where people say, hey, I wanna do the data, but this is also only like my second really big case. I want somebody who helps me practice how to actually ask those four deer questions how to shape my opening to the data. And so now a lot of times, Sean Claggett and our firm will enter together. We'll just work them through the case, start to finish. Often we'll show up and help them pick the jury. Um, They'll go out and do a couple days of work days in Vegas, and then we'll take 10% of the case. And it turns out for everybody, right? Because the value of the case skyrockets both to have, uh, I think our firm and Sean's firm involved. Um, and also the quality of the lawyering, not because those lawyers aren't ready, but because anytime you bring in more good people, it gets better, um, increases the value. And that's kind of my favorite setting. I think that's the future of our work.
1: Well, what did Napoleon Hill say? Uh, two brains create a third invisible brain. It's the same concept.
0: Yeah. I think it's that idea.
1: Um, okay. I lied. I have another question. What's the difference between doing this versus your typical focus group? Is it just that you get so many more people? So that's hence the name big data. Is is that the benefit? Is there any time where a focus group would be better? Do people do both?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so the big difference is the number. All right. So some, the problem with small samples, if you're using them to make big decisions, is they can be really wrong. Right. So imagine a focus group of 12 people. Six men and six women, and all six women vote for the plaintiff, and all six men vote for the defense. You'd be very tempted to say, "I need women on my jury." That's a completely wrong conclusion because you only had six, <laughs> and and it, the sample is too small to to infer anything statistically.
1: But wouldn't a focus groups are to? I know you're. Right no, about, it's okay. But wouldn't a focus group like okay, if you know that you're in this jurisdiction, couldn't you get people out of there? And wouldn't that have a benefit versus you're getting? I assume when you do big data, it's like you're just getting people from all over the country, like, or does that not have a, as big as an impact as I would think, or one would think? And maybe people don't think that. And I'm an idiot. I don't know.
0: No, I was I was liking watching you think through that. Um, you're quick. The no the the so first of all, you can do big data from venues. So and you and do you? Yeah. So you can do big data from a city. You can do big data from a state. Or what's even better a lot of times is to do big data by refining to the venue. So imagine somebody's like got a case in a conservative county in Kentucky. You can't get 500 people out of that county. There might only be 500 people in it. But you know that it's 80% white, it's or 90% white, it's 90% conservative, it's 50% Trump supporting, it's highly religious. We have deals now with all the sort of survey platforms where we can turn the dials and get a sample of just those people. And the truth is a white rural conservative trump supporting male is the same in Texas and in Kentucky and in Rhode Island. So what you really need is to get enough of those people. So no, you can you can simulate a venue anywhere or sample the venue. That's doable and kind of solved. That's a solved problem. The value of in-person focus groups. So I've told you what I think doesn't work, which is making big decisions on really small samples. I think that's dangerous. I mean, I always tell people the same thing. I'm like, if a medical like if you made a medical device, and you only tested it on 12 people, and then you released it to the market, we'd sue the medical device manufacturer, right? We'd be like, you have to study more people. But like, look, anytime you have anything you're putting out in the population, if you told them, well, we tested it on 12 people, people like, are you crazy? That's not enough. But attorneys still make sometimes $50 million decisions on 12 people, which is nuts. So what do we do now? What we do is now, Sean's a great example. We do big data on the case. Mm -hmm. Then- You hold in-person, not really focus groups, in-person practice sessions where you give your opening statement based on what the data is telling you is most important to do and avoid things you need to deal with. And you ask those people to help give you feedback about whether that's coming through, how they're perceiving you, but you're not making strategic decisions about issues based on that. What you're doing instead is you're using that as your practice. And what I say is, it's like, of course, my son's a basketball player. I want him to watch video of a a good layup. But then he's got to go practice doing it to actually make the layup. Lawyers are the same. So we can give them great data. But if they're not able to implement it in trial strategy and dealing with their experts and controlling their clients and actually picking that jury, then they paid a lot of money for data they can't use.
1: Do you ever like work with someone and you're like, they're not going to be able to pull this off and like tell them like, hey, you need to bring someone in or do you not dare?
0: I do. Um, I do do that. And we've had, you know, what's crazy is, I don't know, I don't think this is even like generalizable. I had a client who had a good case and I felt like the data said it could be a good case, but he was going to struggle to implement it a little bit. It just, he just needed more sort of practice. So I sent him to John and Jordan. They worked with him and then he went and tried the case. And I think for whatever reason, it didn't stick. And so the case was tried in a way that was sort of not the model. And the result was okay, but not great, right? And so what we try to do is be really candid with people about like, look, because here's the thing. If you take the ego out of it, if you say to somebody, look, you've got a case worth a lot of money. Your client deserves great representation. You've done a good job getting it this far, but you might need a little help. A a reasonable person says yes to that. And it's only ego that would sort of make you say, well, no, I I want it to be all my verdict. And if I screw it up, still, at least it was mine. I mean, so most people... I've been pleasantly surprised to see that most people are really excited to have the help um, and willing to sort of accept it.
1: So this thing that Sean does with like, uh, like with opening statement, you couldn't do that through the platforms that you do the big data, like couldn't you pull, and like, I guess another question I have is like, how precise is it? Like, are they just giving you a number or can you actually communicate with some of these people? Like if somebody has a really strong opinion Or makes a really good point. Like are they giving you written feedback and thoughts and feelings as well or no?
0: No, they are. It's so it's 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 pretty it's actually pretty fun. So what you'll do, for example, you might say, um, you know, simplest division. Did you vote for the plane for the defense? Right. Okay, great. Thirty percent voted for the defense. But then we ask that 30% quantitatively, we ask them things like Here are all the things the defense argued tell us the most important arguments driving your decision. So now we know our headaches, and we can rank them. We're like, these two things are what are killing us. Great. But then we also ask those people, you voted for the defense. Tell us in your own words what the plaintiff would have to do to change your mind. And then we take that four, you know, like let's say you had 400 people and 30%. percent you got 120 defense jurors. And they've all told you in their own words exactly what they'd need to see in order to vote differently. So
1: you find the pattern.
0: Well, and then we'll run it through AI.
1: That's my, that was so, my yeah. next question. So, we'll it, yes. well, so then okay. we'll put it
0: through artificial intelligence. Okay, cool. That was
1: my next question. And we'll
0: mine out the 10 leading points. Okay. And then we're like, all right, hey, we got our wish list. We got to go to work. To change these people's minds, we need to deal with quantitatively, we know these things. And in their own words, we know these things.
1: And then do you go and do it again? Like do another study?
0: Often we'll do it again after the case is reframed and refined. Or if they say, oh, we just didn't know that was a problem. We actually have some evidence about that. We'll often run a follow-on and see if we're right. Did this improve it? Often you'll see, like we've had a lot of cases where the first time we run it, the numbers are so-so. Like you'll win it half the time. We refine it based on what the jurors tell it and tell us, and all of a sudden it's, you'll win it eight out of ten times. That's a huge difference, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's that's a lot of times the process. It's iterative, right? Learn about it. Ask jurors why they're doing what they're doing. Seek to understand. Seek to improve. Check it again.
1: Cool. How can people contact you?
0: Um, They can reach me. I'm John Campbell at Campbell Law. Um, I have a really awkward long email from when we were young attorneys and didn't know to buy better platforms. I'm John at CampbellLawLLC.com. But you'll find me um, if you want to text me, 314 249-2500 is my cell. Reach out and I'll talk to you.
1: You pulled a Daryl Isaacs giving out your cell phone number.
0: It's okay. I'm not that popular. Daryl Isaacs is a big deal. I'm not. A couple of people will reach out.
1: All right. We'll put everything in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to John Campbell for everything he shared with us today. If you guys found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show. Thank you.